as your bullet would read. Trust those little synapses from left side to right side and they're firing back and forth. And Oh yes, book of James. Kindly follow along, I'll be reading the first ten verses, James 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? Ye lust, and have not, ye kill, and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. May God bless his word to our ears. Let's pray. Father, we approach this, your word, and again, that it be alive and quick, sharp, um, piercing to our hearts, our souls, our very inner beings, that we might see such truth, see ourselves as we are, and see you as you are. Thank you for such an illumination that's afforded your children, the guiding of the Spirit, and may the words that uh, we share here this day be profitable. Uh, in other words, that we would grow thereby, that we would learn more of you, and that they be the words of the Spirit and not of your servant. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, if you're a student of the New Testament or even just a casual reader of the Bible, you'd probably come across the idea or have heard or read that in New Testament times, they would refer to each other as brother and sister. You know, um, I know churches in Central and South America uh, frequently do that. Um, it's just a common greeting, common exchange. Um, here in America, not necessarily so, at least not that I'm familiar with. Um, it might prove good sometimes when you don't know the person's name and you just say, hey, brother, you know, or hey, sister, you know, we can get by with that. But it's, it's a relationship that was very useful and powerful in the New Testament. Yet our text begins today in verse 4, and I want you to notice what James calls his readers. Ooh, adulterers and adulteresses. Now, Be in mind, though, that he, in other places, not only in this particular section, but in other areas, 
he does refer to them as brethren. They're Christians. But he uses this very powerful and descriptive language to get his point across. He's writing to believers who are living in such a way that they needed to be classified as people who are living in adultery. And it's important for us to understand, at least as we think of it, can you imagine receiving a letter or a text or an email from some noted pastor or some Bible teacher? Dear so-and-so, adulterer. <laughs> Dear so-and-so, adulteress. You know, it grabbed your attention, wouldn't it? You know? And I'm sure it did for them. We've gone you know, through a majority of this letter, and he's pleaded in very Christian terms, and now comes along and he speaks to them very powerfully and strongly. I think it grabbed their attention, especially when you think of them as Jewish believers, who, had they lived under the Old Testament economy, would have suffered stoning as a result of the caption of being an adulterer or an adulteress. And generally speaking, James could not have used anything more shocking or more outrageous to his audience. These are powerful words. Now, to break this down, the understanding of the adultery that he mentions here is not physical. Not at all. It's spiritual adultery. And yet, by moving it from physical adultery, which we're familiar with, to spiritual adultery does not lessen the power of those words. It doesn't reduce it to something less, because he purposely comes along and he gives these very words that the audience might understand this is a serious matter. It's like calling somebody a thief, when all they've done is slept on the job. They've, they've robbed the company of time, because you, you, you slept and you should be working. You've, you're, you're a murderer. Look what you've done to this meal, you know? You've burned it, you've this, or, you know, we use those words, those nouns, in, in a very uh, figurative sense. But it's a powerful meaning that comes behind it. When you go through your Bible, you find the word adultery, you should know that it carries all types of connotations. Unfaithfulness, impurity, violating the commandment of marriage, just to name a few. The word paints the picture of a wounded spouse who feels rejected and betrayed, misled and deceived by this picture of the sanctity of marriage that has been just recklessly thrown away in an act of adultery. And that picture is to be drawn the same, whether it's physical or spiritual. The relationship that God brings to them was one that was very powerful. Spiritual adultery is referred to in many places of the Old Testament. Again, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know that it's used especially with Israel's relationship with God. I want to share just two, just to give the beginning pictures. starts out in Deuteronomy 7. We read, The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. 
but because the Lord loved you. There's the key, the focus. He's saying, my relationship to Israel isn't because you're rich or you're powerful or you could do this or that. You're, you're nothing. But I chose you in this relationship because I loved you. Later on in Ezekiel 16, and I'll begin reading at verse 8, but it continues past verse 8 for quite a few verses, but this is sufficient. Now when I passed over thee, this is God speaking to Israel through the prophet, and I looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee, and I covered thy nakedness, Yea, I swear unto thee, and I entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. God says, I loved you. Not only, you know, starting out there and in, in coming, coming out of Egypt into the promised land, but all through their time. And he reminds them of all of the things that you've done, and I made a covenant with you, a marriage contract with you, you're mine. And that's a powerful picture that he draws. In these verses and many others, God projects himself as the husband and Israel the bride. And you know what does she do in response to this glorious relationship? What is Israel's relay to God for what he has done? He has rescued her and provided for her and protected her. How does she engage while she is a benefactor of this supreme union? How does her response show forth to this faithful spouse? Again and again, she falls into the sin of idolatry as she is seen whoring after other gods. Again and again, she's warned and she's judged, and yet he continues to bring her back because he loves her. She purposely breaks the vows that she had made with God and sought others to be her satisfaction and sought others to be her sufficiency. I think a good book study, if you ever have time or just to look through it, the book of Hosea. God speaking through the prophet and about a, a, an unfaithful woman and how he was to go back and to remarry her after she's gone off to other men and so forth. The, the relationship is, is very beautiful. I think these verses and many others draw this picture together for us. But with that background in mind, what had these New Testament believers done to warrant that title? You know, that's Old Testament stuff. What had these New Testament believers done for them to be called adulterers and adulteresses? How was that brought out? What was James referring to? Well, again, we start out, and it wasn't physical adultery. James is not calling them adulterers and adulteresses because of a relationship physically with others. Yet if it's spiritual adultery, was it a matter of idols? Throughout the Old Testament, idolatry was key. Were they committing spiritual adultery by carving and decorating and prostrating themselves in front of wood and stone figures, like the Jews in the Old Testament times had done? Or were they incorporating the worship of the gods of the Greeks and Romans 
New Testament time. Those are the prominent. Let's have our Christian services, but we're going to bring in the Greeks and the Romans. Hardly. (laughs) That would have been too simple. But listen how James describes it. Know ye not? In other words, don't you know? Of course they know. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Enmity, world enmity, word enmity is, is, a, is a conflict between the two. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. That is indeed their adultery. That, he spells it out clearly. They were married to Christ. They were to be a bride, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that they were to live holy and without blemish. And yet, in truth, they sought the happiness of the world and they desired the favor of the world. For all that Christ had done for them, and again, this isn't too far from the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, for all that he had done and provided for them, known throughout the Old Testament scripture, brought into the new times of the words of the apostles, right here from James, they had sought, they had looked after the happiness of the world and desired the favor of the world. Now, how do we know that? Is it just what James points out here? I think we've seen a number of them, and because we've gone over this for you know weeks and weeks and weeks in the past, There are a couple of things that I want to bring out to show that what James is saying, their desire for the world, this friendship of the world, is true. Just begin with chapter 3. What was chapter 3 about? The tongue. The tongue. Verse after verse after verse after verse. He talked about the power of the tongue, its use, and how lives were being ruined and the destruction that was a result of the tongue. This isn't just about hurt feelings. This is about lives that were being destroyed. Is that not of the world? Isn't the power of the tongue, and we see it every day all around us, chapter 3 Verse 14, we read, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, doesn't that highlight the world? Watch around us. Look, every corner of the world. The heart of bitterness, jealousy is the hallmark of the world in which we live. Watch the news. Talk to a policeman, a school teacher, a counselor. Talk to those who have a constant interaction to, just to keep a certain level. And he says, the source of 99.9% of all of these conflicts come from this matter of envy and strife and bitterness. That's a hallmark of the world. Why, is, why, why can't they have a, a peace in Sudan? You know, the, the country is impoverished. You know, and here we have this poor group with this poor group and this got armies and this got army and they're going to kill each other just to make sure that what? And it goes on and on. Look again in chapter 4, the first three verses that we read early passage that we looked at the first time we met here for chapter 4. From whence come 
wars and fightings among you. Come they not hence, even from your lust to war, a desire to war, to fight? Verse 2, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that it may be consumed upon your lust. Covetousness, selfishness, pride, envy. And the last one he puts in there are just prayerlessness. Don't pray, period, whatsoever. Brethren, if these are not hallmarks of the pattern of the world, I don't know what is. I don't know what else you could funnel all of the conflicts down. It has nothing to do with the ecosystem, uh, how much CO2 is pumped into the air, the, the person's desire to paint his head red and, and his... Never mind, we're not going to go into that one. But you understand what I'm saying. Covetousness, selfishness, pride, and envy. And James says, if this is the case, if you, who I'm writing to, have such a hard attitude, you're an enemy with God. You simply can't have it both ways. And that's what they were living. They didn't understand it, and that's why he's saying it as he does. He can't have one foot in the world and one foot in there as a bride of Christ. The division simply cannot live. You've heard Jesus' own words in Matthew 6. No man can serve two masters. Either we hate the one or love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus obviously had a certain principle that he's bringing out about service and the relationship. But he says, you can't have a divided loyalty in life. It's got to be one or the other. You know the words from the pen of John. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, they just get oil and water. They just don't mix. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. He says, the two can't mix. And, and, and the truth is, they were riding both, or trying to ride both. You can't apply or live with worldly attitudes and worldly actions and expect godly results. I can't live like the world and expect God to bless. I can't live like the world and act like the world and apply worldly attitudes and then all of a sudden say, well, where is God in all of this? The bride of Christ cannot live like that. Tell me what husband would allow his wife to have an illicit affair with another man? What do you think of a woman who abandons her marital relationship and engages in an adulterous relationship? How do you think God feels? What is God's reaction to believers who become captivated with the world? An allurement too. And I say an allurement too because I'm acting like the world that's around me. That's my attitude towards the world. When believers spend more time in the world 
than, than, than with him. When believers base their decisions and attitudes on worldly things instead of the word of God. God is a jealous God and he cannot tolerate a friendship with this world. We base our decisions on what? How do I choose this? Well, they did it. Or how do I choose this? Well, they robbed me. Or how did they do it? Well, you know, an eye for an eye. It doesn't work that way. And then, brethren, the danger we face today, verse 4, pictures the church, the bride of Christ. Mark this down. God has made us for himself and then given himself for our enjoyment. He redeemed us, just like those verses in the Old Testament about God's choosing Israel because I loved you. You're mine. Well, God has redeemed us through Christ, and he's made us in order that we might enjoy him. In him is all of the sufficiency of anything that we would ever want. Don't you think heaven is like that? How could we leave this world and then get up there? I've heard people, well, I know in heaven they're going to have fishing up there because I just love fishing and I know God's going to take him, you know. Whatever. No. My total heart's attention and focus is on him. Such a relationship. Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? You know that one? Should be a no-brainer. God's. Chief end is to, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And that initially was, I I couldn't grasp that. Glorifying God was something that we mentally and we, 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 we try to physically do all the time. Glorifying you, God, you know, and there's some groups that are glorifying God, you want the hands raised or, or, or whatever. But how do I enjoy him? Forever. I need to find him as the source of my happiness. I need to find him because he has created me and brought me to him. I need to find that he is a sufficiency for me. That I don't need to go wandering around and looking for other things. Psalm 16, 5 through 11. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen out unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord, who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in thy presence is fullness of joy. Oh, well, that's reserved for heaven. Really? There's, there's not a fullness of joy we're in the presence of the Lord? At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 144, 15. Happy is the people, happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people 
whose God is the Lord. They're happy, not goofal, but there's a joy and a fullness because God is their Lord. Jehovah is the one to whom they are focused. Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. That's salvation. Oftentimes, Old Testament doesn't, doesn't refer to an eternal salvation, but the rescuing, you know, of all situations. I, I rely and I trust in him for all these things. Yet how often are we, oh, what's going to happen? You know, I just couldn't sleep last night because of this. The psalmist says, no, my happiness, my joy is in him. I find my salvation in him. God has made us for himself and has given himself for us and our enjoyment. Yet it's adultery when we try to make friends with the world. Of all that's presented unto us. If we search for and find the treasures from the world that should only be found in God, we've been unfaithful to our marriage vows to him. He supplies this. He says, I'll, take, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And then all of a sudden we wander off and we're on this direction or doing this. And where is the Lord? You know. How are we doing so far? We pull out that mirror, self-examination, you know. <clears throat> Back in our little farmhouse, we had a, had a big mirror, and it's, we've got it at our house now, but it's seen better years. It's probably over 100 years old, you know. And I remember as the kids, it was the top of the stairs of the farmhouse, and we'd always go by, and we kids would look at themselves, you know. As we take God's word and we hold it up in front of us, you know, it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides asunder, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If I hold this up, how do I see myself? How do I feel about myself? I doubt if any of us have been faithful as we ought. And I think we've, we've also adapted to much of the world's patterns in life, in business, in relationships, in time management, in priorities, because that's our, we're humans. We've made such an application, and I say that we are committing spiritual adultery. And may I remind you that God is a jealous God, jealous of his own, and he has a right to be jealous, incredibly jealous. Think of what he has done, and what he continues to do on behalf of us, the most one-sided relationship ever in the universe. The spirit within jealously guards our relationship with God, and the spirit is grieved when we sin against God. When we love the world, when we seek after the world's approval, when we seek after happiness in the world, when the spirit says, your only happiness can be found more and more and more with him in that relationship that is there. Verse 5, he says, Do you think the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? So what do we do? Where is the hope that we have? 
It's found in scriptures, and there are a number of times we've mentioned the closeness between Proverbs and this book of James. Proverbs 3.34, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. Now, look at verse 6. James says, 4.6, But he giveth more grace. If God's demand for absolute faithfulness seems impossible, be assured that with the demand of faithfulness, he's given us grace to obey it. I I read what's being presented here, and it presents myself as saying, I have not been a faithful bride. I've not been a faithful spouse. And what he demands of me, I say, Lord, it's impossible. But Solomon pens it down, and James brings it once again. What God demands of us, he supplies the ability to do it by grace. By grace. And I think that is absolutely marvelous. What God demands of his children, knowing that in and of ourselves we cannot perfectly obey it. He gives grace. No. Look at the verse again. He giveth more grace. More grace. More than what? More than all of the the stench of the sins that we find ourselves in and have followed after and dropped down in and fallen. More than all of that of the temptations and the darkness of pride and covetousness that they are all sourced in. I found a hymn by Annie Johnson Flint. I just read a little background of Annie. Um, at the age of six, she had lost both of her parents. Her uh, mother died uh, in the birth, giving birth to her sister, who was younger. Uh, they were adopted by a godly family, and not long after, she came to know Christ as her Savior. By her teens, she had developed arthritis, and Sue had lost the use of her legs. She was bedridden, covered with sores, and lost control of her hands and many of her bodily functions. Yet despite all of this, she kept the faith that continued to author poems, even though her fingers were twisted with pain. And her poems expressed the hope that she still had in Jesus Christ. Well, think of this. Listen to this hymn. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labor is increased. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. The chorus goes, His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Think of her condition, you know, and she pens it, not out, oh, this is going to be popular, but she pens it out of the resources that Christ had given her by grace. 
She could have said, oh, man, this is, you know, I can't. No. She found such a joy and such a blessing. However, and we slam on the brakes here, there's one caveat to receiving grace. You know, but, you know, the verse says, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. You know, I was thinking about matters of humility, and this is very similar to what we read in Proverbs 3.34, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace to the lowly. You see, we need to understand both here in James and in Proverbs that grace is afforded us as we humbly come unto him. He doesn't give grace to the proud and to the self-reliant or to the self-righteous person. He opposes those attitudes, but he gives grace to the humble. It's how it has always been and how it always shall be. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes, Yet he, meaning God, has respect unto the lowly. He views them with pleasure, thinks of them with care, listens to their prayers, and protects them from evil. Because they think little of themselves, he thinks much of them. They reverence him, and he respects them. They are low in their, their own esteem, and he makes them high in his esteem. What a painting. You know, how he looks upon his children with favor, undeserved as we are, yet the grace that he gives us enables us to come to him humbly, if that is our heart's desire. Of course, we can't manufacture humility, can we? I've tried it at times, you know. You come out of the pulpit, come down. Hey, pastor, great message. You know, just part of the suit isn't quite enough to fill it, you know. And you take some pride in that when all along you know that it was nothing but the grace of God that had done it. Different situations in life, we come along and you say, and, and, you know, I need to be humble about this. How can I be humble? You know, it just, it's not easy. Nevertheless, it's there. But humility is the relationship, a reality that comes from getting to know the Lord. It's found in the closeness of my relationship with him. Isaiah discovered this. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. Then said I, what? Hallelujah, I've seen the Lord. He says, woe is me. This is Isaiah the prophet. Close to the king. I think maybe a cousin to the king at the time. I could quite remember. A man chosen by God to be used of him. And he says, woe is me. Who am I? My lips are dirty. I live amongst people who have unclean lips themselves. When the Lord was revealed to him in all of his glory, Isaiah responded in profound humility. And this can happen to us. Sometimes we, we beat the horse to not understood, but, you know, we've got to be in the word. 
we have to purposely set time finding this God who has again revealed himself again and again and again and again and how he's dealt with people and how he's understood them. Just on a matter of, of, of reading and, 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 and comprehending and, but allowing the word of God to know him, to help me understand who this God is. It also comes upon our knees in prayer. And as we do so, he is increasingly revealed to us. And our response is increasingly characterized as humility. I don't think Jesus ever went to the Father in pride. Jesus humbly approached his Father. This is, this is the second son of the, of the Trinity. He was there at the time of creation. He, he came in the form of man. He lived it. In, in, in those few years Yet he always came to his father in humility. Why? Because he understood the relationship. And how do we understand it? Practically speaking, verses 7 through 10, James implores us in some very practical ways. And and I think we'll deal with these at another time, uh, simply because of of the content. But uh, they, they contribute to this idea of, of coming unto the Lord in humility. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw nigh or draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. There's two good keys there, you know. Hands isn't just, you know, wash your hands, but he says what you're involved in. Hearts, you know, double-minded people. Uh, be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Especially verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That's the key. I don't mind calling you adulterers and adulteresses because you are, just as I am. None of us have reached a stage in life where we are spiritually, not until we get to glory, spiritually right with our Heavenly Father. Yet he's chosen us. He's brought us to a place where we can access him. And he glorifies himself through us as we approach such an attitude. Examine ourselves, brethren, as we look into our service with our Lord. Uh, James' words were powerful, but he brings great hope. And I hope it's hope to us. Let's pray. Father, we pause as we conclude these brief thoughts on your word and are at times shaken to the core when we realize as we examine ourselves who we are. We're not the people necessarily that you're very pleased in at times. Our actions, our relationship to the world in which we live, we sought to find um, its approval by what we do We've sought to find um, pleasure in it. We've often patterned our life or our words, our, uh, our actions, our planning in patterns that the world has deigned um, the right way to do it. And we have completely ignored you and your word. We've ignored talking to you about this. We've ignored asking you. We've ignored uh, imploring you. We've run ahead and we've, we've failed to wait on you. 
And so, Father, we'll admit that we've not been a faithful spouse, and yet you still love us. Assist us, O Father, in this matter of humility. Help us to understand its ramifications as we um, uh, try to seek your face, and that we would uh, be more effective uh, servants of the Most High God. Seal these thoughts upon our hearts. May your spirit find fertile soil in growing it throughout this week. In Christ's name, amen.